being able to help craft the cap table is really meaningful to me. Like I, I really, really focus hard on making sure we have representation, not just from a gender perspective, but from a racial perspective as well, you know, that we're inclusive in, in every way you can imagine, because it's not just about finding a seat at the table for yourself. It's about pulling up a chair for someone else without realizing it. That's how I got in the game in the first place was people kind of asking me um, to consider investing. Welcome to the Vitalize Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, the Director of Marketing at Vitalize Venture Capital. On today's episode, we have Dina Shakir, a partner at Lux Capital, a multi-stage venture firm with around $4 billion in assets under management. Dina joined Lux in 2019. Prior to joining Lux, she was a partner at GV, formerly Google Ventures, and she also led product partnerships at Google for early-stage products in healthcare, AI machine learning, and search. She also directed social impact investments at Google.org. Let's dive in. Dina, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time. There is so much to cover, and it's kind of overwhelming how much we could talk about because so many people were interested in asking questions to you, and I posted on Twitter, which I'm not surprised by after doing more research. Let's start with the easy one, though. Well, I, I was happy to see some <laughs> questions. I thought people were going to be asking, you know, uh, r- random things like... <laughs> you know, about my hair products or something like that. But it turns out they were all very awesome, substantive questions that I'm happy to dig into. Those will be in part two, by the way. (laughs) Oh, there we go. Okay, cool. The product Rex. I'll be a real influencer then. (laughs) Your background is quite varied. Done a lot of different things. With VC in the first place, though, why get into VC in the first place, Dina? Yeah. I mean, it's definitely not what I thought I'd be doing. I, de- I don't think I knew what VC was growing up. And I was very focused on you know pursuing a path where I could have impact. A lot of that had to do with my own um, heritage, my, my upbringing. My parents are both immigrants from Iraq. I came of age witnessing uh, you know, my parents' hometown of Baghdad um, under sanctions and, and at one war after another and was in high school during 9-11. And so that really had a formative impact on me where I felt not only a, uh, a desire, but really a mandate, an obligation to pay it forward, knowing how fortunate I was with my good luck and, and also wanting to, um, you know, t- to help be a part of a future where that wouldn't happen again. So I thought that would take the form of maybe human rights or journalism or policy. Uh, definitely wasn't thinking that I would move back to the Bay Area, which happens to be where I grew up. Uh, you know, at the time, if you weren't a chip engineer, there really wasn't a lot to do if you had global aspirations. Uh, but the world changed a lot in you know in those uh, decades since, and in the early 2010s, I was uh, I was at the State Department um, and had had joined the Obama administration after briefly um, spending some time as a reporter, actually covering the White House. I was really inspired by it, and was coming out here a lot for work and was witnessing. The, the, my hometown. I was literally born in Mountain View, like before Google was there. And, you know, uh, witnessing this Silicon Valley emerging not only as you know a, a tech um, hub, but really as a mecca for impact. And that technology was not just a separate sector, but a way of doing a lot of things differently. So that's ultimately how I ended up back uh, in Mountain View, actually at Google, um, and eventually um, made my way into venture several years later by way of actually healthcare, helping to build what became Google Health. Uh, and in the process of doing so, realizing just how uh, how impactful some of these early stage startups were and, and how much they were able to achieve vis-a-vis the team of hundreds of engineers that we um, that we had at Google. And so that's what led me to, to, to venture. 
with that and that experience, so a lot of people, there's many different paths in life, obviously. You could go this route, which you did. You chose eventually to go the venture route. In theory, you could have like tried to start a company, join a company. Why the shift specifically then to like, I want to be involved with a lot of companies as the investor side? Because I know a lot of people are thinking about that. I've had a lot of conversations with people about that. I'm curious for you how you went through that process for you. Yeah, well, I, I did start a company um, many, many years ago in college. It was, um, you know, it was an interesting um, process and definitely gave me a lot of insight into sort of the, the founding process and the early stage hiring and all of that. But it was a different time. Um, a couple of things. First of all, you know, I, I don't think founders should ever really be, you know, holding a hammer looking for a nail. Like if, if you're starting a company, it's because you've experienced something, um, you know, so viscerally that you feel there's no other choice but to build it yourself or yourself, you know, and at that urge were to come or whatever have come, I think that's something I would have considered doing. But I've also always been a generalist, you know, even when people say, oh, you're a healthcare specialist. Well, you know, much to my parents' chagrin, I'm actually not. Like, I never went to medical school. I can't prescribe medication. I like, certainly love to diagnose people, but I'm not clinically qualified to do so. <laughs> But I have had the great opportunity to work uh, not only across sectors from public to private to tech to, to, to venture to journalism to philanthropy, but also even within tech. Like I, I, I spent years doing, uh, you know, early stage product at Google and I got to dive in deep on things like Fiber and Google Hire and Verily and Baseline. And I love that. And so what that's also enabled me to build is a really diverse uh, network of people, people that eventually could, you know, be awesome, you know, contacts for the portfolio companies, people who are building companies themselves, people who are great board members, et cetera. And that is, uh, as it turns out, what really lends itself well to uh, to venture. You got to just know who to ask the right questions to uh, and, and to be able to have that comfort and fluency with shifting uh, across, uh, you know, uh, topic areas very quickly. One of the things you mentioned there is the globalization uh, side of things as well with with how the world's going. And there was a question on Twitter someone I asked around that similar topic around with, with like digital health companies specifically expanding to other markets, expanding globally. As an investor, how do you look at that or gauge that when you're investing in these companies when, as you're working with them, if you're a board of directors, like take me through that, that process as well as expansion in that way. Yeah, I mean, my initial interest um, started globally, not only personally, but also professionally in what I was working on. And, you know, I definitely think there's a clear leapfrog innovation opportunity in a lot of global markets. Um, I think it's challenging to build a solution that, especially in healthcare, that works in the context of our very complex American healthcare system and, and translate that overseas. Um, yeah. But uh, at the same time, there are certainly lessons learned that can be applied. So, you know, we at Lux, we invest globally. We've had the uh, opportunity to to do so even in healthcare um, with our investment in M Pharma. Um, so always excited about what's going on in, uh, in, in emerging markets and just generally around the world and, and uh, eyes open to opportunities there, especially uh, especially these days. With working with so many different founders, I know he had mentioned on a podcast, I believe it was around like, you want to assess like the coachability of founders and like how gritty they are. Are there questions you ask to figure that out? What things you look for on that? Because I've heard that before as well, and it makes sense, but then it's also kind of like, well, dive deeper. What do you mean? Like, because you're going to see so many different founders, what separates them in that way in terms of the coachability or, you know, how gritty they are as well? Yeah. Um, you know, I think 
honestly, the, the interaction with the founder starts even before you're meeting with them, right? What are, uh, you know, what is the process like in setting up the meeting? What are your interactions with them uh, over email or, you know, if, if it's an e-introduction or, um, you know, how much homework have they done in advance? How much homework are you doing, by the way? All of these things also should apply to founders <laughs> who are evaluating VCs. Um, and, and so I, I, that assessment starts, starts even before the meeting. And then, of course, in a meeting, you know, some of this is an art. Some of it is a science. I think a lot of it is just ultimately about um, being able to read people. And that's part of why I, I, I love this job um, so much. It's, uh, you, you are definitely in, you know, in your capacity as a steward of capital, making investments that you believe will return multi-billion dollar businesses, but you're also in the in the business of evaluating people. And um, I've learned to trust my instincts. There have been times where I really tried to rationalize a decision because I wanted it to work or the profile of something should have worked. And in retrospect, actually, my instinct was right. And there are times where the instinct wasn't necessarily something I could corroborate through, you know, pure rational evidence. And it turned out to be quite right as well. And again, that's something that um, it, it's also important to be very mindful of because there are some people who will use that argument to reinforce biases that they have or pattern recognition. Um, and I think part of what I really pride myself on is because I'm I'm weird, like my background is different. Nobody would have thought <laughs> me as the profile for a good investor. And, and, um, and I, I try to to be a little bit more flexible and creative when I'm evaluating um, some founders. And there are great examples of that in my portfolio who um, certainly did not look like your typical, if such a thing exists, kind of founder profile and turned out to be absolutely extraordinary CEOs and, and builders. Are there any you want to shout out? I would love to hear if you, if you have a few. Yeah, if not, absolutely. no big deal. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one, uh, one great example is um, Amira Yahyawi from Moss, um, where mm -hmm. she, you know, she's building an incredible company that is providing, you know, financial access and inclusion to students with a, with a, uh, you know, a challenger bank that started off by building a product that enabled students to apply for and find, uh, you know, sources of, of financial aid. And she is someone who never went to college, wasn't able to start you know, to open a bank because she was a stateless, she was a refugee and, 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 you know, all of the things that you, that you would think you would need to be able to do a business like that. She didn't match any of that. Um, you know, like, as I said, not only did she not go to Stanford, Harvard, et cetera, she didn't go to college at all. She was, you know, one of the forces behind the Tunisian revolution, but, um, as it turns out, you know, not only Lux and, and me, but certainly, uh, you know, Sequoia and, uh, and, and Tiger and others saw in her um, something very special. And, um, and it's a true privilege to be able to, to work with her. On that note with helping founders, we'll give a shout out to Ellen DeSilva, who asked, what's your strategy around supporting founders? She's extraordinary at it. She's trying at doing it at manages to make time for every need. What is your strategy around supporting founders? Uh, I would be curious, Dina, as well. Yeah, I, people have very, uh, I should say, investors have very polarizing opinions on this. Like some feel like, you know, you should be backing founders who can, you know, who don't need you and and sure. kind of make pick pick your your bets and then step back. Um, I am, that's not me. Like I, you know, I'm not, not going to be hands-on micromanaging anything, but I love what I do. I take pride in what I do. And it, I think, I think there is a lot of value to be had uh, from working with an investor, not only just from, you know, whatever their networks or skill sets might be, but it's literally our job to spend all day meeting with companies. We have an insight into the macro. We have an insight into, you know, connecting the dots and, and patterns and all that, that is really valuable to, 
someone who's building and, you know, and, and especially doing so at a really early stage. So that being said, time is finite and it doesn't, this job doesn't scale. I think a lot of firms might be trying to do that by creating these really large teams and kind of outsourcing different aspects of that. That's not how we operate. Um, so you, you know, yeah, you have to be really mindful. You can't just make, you know, thousands of investments personally and expect to be able to provide the same amount of time to each of them. So uh, it really depends. I, I'm on, you know, I've invested across stages. I'm on boards from, you know, seed to to series D right now. So it is really interesting to see how that manifests, that value or, or that kind of, uh, you know, help, if you will, manifest itself at different stages. Um, but, um, you know, ac- across the board, it's something that I really enjoy doing. So. On that note, with the multiple stages, investing you know across different stages as, as a firm, a lot of firms are you know, really focused on either early stage, late stage, growth stage, whatever it may be. Obviously, some are doing cross for you and the complexities with Lux going kind of everywhere as well. What are the complexities of that? How does that, how does that operationally for you? Is it challenging? Uh, I'd just be, love to hear more about how you kind of manage that. Yeah, um, it, it's a great question. It is different. Uh, you know, we are uh, a small team and it's the same team that invests in everything from, you know, Nuco and, and uh, incubations all the way through growth stage opportunities. We're investing out of a venture fund and, and a separate opportunity fund, which is both for doubling down on our winners and for net new opportunities. Um, and so it's a different kind of calculus at this, um, on the one hand. At the same time, when you're able to invest across stages like that, number one, you can really identify clear category winners. So, so the, when we invest at those growth stages, these are companies we should have been in earlier, uh, clearly have emerged, or we've been able to develop theses through our other investments around what those winners are. And so that's, um, you know, that's something that we realized is, is an asset. Um, and and, you know, I think Maven is a really great example of that, um, where we co-led the Series D uh, along with Dragoneer, and um, and it's it's just been an absolute you know pleasure to to be able to help um, to help Kate and that incredible team uh, scale, um, and it also gives you insight into you know what are what's happening at this at that Series D or, or growth stage that you can set yourself up for well at the early stages. What kind of talent? you know, evolution do you see over time as teams grow? Where are those points um, where, you know, either culture shifts happen, where you need to bring in certain people? That is something that many investors, even if they focus just on seed, will see over time, but that usually takes a lot of time. You see those companies grow. You know, I haven't been doing this very long. I haven't been in venture for 20 years, you know, but I've been able to see a lot over that period of time because I've had the the privilege of being able to witness different stages of growth. Um, and so I think that's really also uh, an asset to to a founder. To that point, and that those insights into having kind of multi-stages as well and seeing the, the market kind of melt down, turn down, whatever, in the last number of months or so, how have you then communicated that in terms of your insights to your founders, prepping them for what, you know, what to do now? It's a, a much different situation. How have you been going about that? I, I'm really curious because I've seen the craziness and been curious how every VC handles it in that way too. Yeah, I mean that's 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 another great example of where that multi-stage visibility really helps because we started to see it even earlier with some of the you know the growth stage companies that may have been out in the market or the feedback that you were getting or just a general sort of cool down that that you were sensing. Um, and so being able to make sure your early stage companies are armed with plenty of capital and runway um, and uh, and really setting themselves up for success in that way. So that that that's again, something that you would have had probably less visibility into had you not had that exposure across those different stages. 
Yeah, that makes total sense. And someone had asked on Twitter as well around areas you think are underinvested in, whether it be healthcare or not. Any particular verticals, areas that you think this is going to be either either be big because there's not many people investing, but there should be any areas you're seeing as you do invest multi-stage. I'd be curious about about that too. You know, I love that everybody is talking about fertility now because when we started investing in that space, like there was still hardly anybody was doing it. And there were a ton of questions around, what's the TAM going to be? What's the TAM going to be? Now, every other article is about, you know, the uh, the hot market and fertility tech. And um, that's amazing to me. So I think, you know, we, we at Lux do pride ourselves on seeing things before they're obvious. Uh, and there are many examples of that in the portfolio. Um, and I frankly think women's health continues to be one of them, even though there is this sort of general discourse around it being hot and emerging and, you know, really Kate and, and Maven leading the way there with the being the first unicorn in women's and family health, there's still a tremendous amount of underinvestment uh, across the board. On the R&D side, still single digit percentage of uh, dollars going into research in this space um, and and even on the investment side. So um, lots, lots more to be done there. Incredible companies I'm seeing at the early stage um, that are um, you know, I think going to be the next mavens of the world. Really excited about that. Pediatrics is one um, that we're spending a lot of time in uh, on the healthcare side. Um, and, 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 you know, outside of healthcare, um, you know, I think food and ag, there's, you know, some interesting um, companies that we're seeing in that space as well. And we've seen so much advancement on the science and technology that you're able to actually scale. You're almost hitting that software eating the world moment with these different um, sectors that may, that may have been a little slower to adapt. With those areas, you mentioned I mean, the healthcare one you mentioned first, especially women's fertility. Why do you think they are still underinvested in? Well, um, I mean, the, it's really only been, I think, in the last like maybe six months or so that um, that there's starting to be more interest. And, you know, I, I'm hearing of that a lot across stages, growth as well as, as early. Um, I think one of the reasons it traditionally has been underinvested in ha has a lot to do with the, the, you know, the types of folks who have been around the table making the decisions. And um, again, Kate has talked about this and what, what her experience was at the earliest days of raising her seed round where she'd have, you know, she'd pitch mostly male investors who would, you know, tell her they needed to go talk to their wives to, to see if this like maternal health app was actually, you know, a thing. Despite very clearly, like just looking at the numbers, not only are we talking about half the population, but 80% of the dollars spent in healthcare, et cetera. And so that is starting to change. And that's part of why I'm personally very unapologetic about bringing my whole self. I mean, part of my own thesis in this space have to do with my experience as a mom and going through high risk pregnancies and very scary and dangerous labors and challenges with breastfeeding and all of that. Um, and that's not to say that, you know, I'm making an investment because I had a bad experience or, and so on, but it was, you know, despite being in a position of, of incredible privilege and having access to some of the best, you know, healthcare providers in the world, it was still such a challenge for me. It really opened up my eyes into where the opportunity was here um, or could be. Um, so I think, I think we'll be seeing a lot more of that. Um, and I am seeing it on the founding side and on the investing side. So times are changing. One thing I'm curious about with your experience as well. So we have an angel investing group at Vitalize. I know you've angel invested, I think it said like since 2014. Take me through when you first got started, angel investing, starting to make those decisions to invest in startups, because we've seen a lot of times women are hesitant or less likely to invest in startups or this asset class in general, which we're trying to change. We're always curious about how people think about it. Why did you start then? And any advice or things around getting more women to invest in startups? 
Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, when, when I first started thinking about angel investing, I did not have a lot of liquidity to work with. Um, you know, it, it wasn't something that crossed my mind and I really wish it had, because there are some companies that I was advising without even realizing that's what I was doing, um, at a, at a, yeah. at a very early stage that ended up being very successful companies. <laughs> that I yeah. asked for some equity or <laughs> offered to put in like a $5,000 check. It would have been incredibly valuable. And it's only now that I'm seeing that, but there are many examples of that, um, including some of the most iconic kind of Silicon Valley companies that first started around the early 2010s. Um, but I, I just didn't have that mindset at all. Um, not to mention, again, what I, what I sort of saw as a real barrier to entry here, which is I assumed you needed to be, you know, uh, a millionaire or, or you know close Crazy to that rich, yeah. <laughs> be able to do that. Uh, what I didn't realize is that there were a lot of people, mostly dudes, who were doing this for a while, just kind of you know putting either their own money or some family money kind of behind their friends, and and were able to really um, catalyze from that. And so um, it started with friends of mine who were starting businesses who really came to me and asked me, hey, would you want to put a check into this? And I was like, oh my god, I don't know if I can afford this. Like, should I do this? And as soon as I started realizing that, you know. I'm writing the check and I probably won't see this money again, um, mm -hmm. but there is value to be had. <laughs> Nonetheless, um, it, it, it started to be, um, I started to get more comfort around it. And I got to say, now it's one of my favorite parts of the, of the job, actually. Well, there are a lot of things I love, but one of them <laughs> is once we've signed, you know, the term sheet and we have um, an opportunity to bring in um, angels and, and smaller seed funds um, into the syndicate, being able to, um, you know, to help the cap table is really meaningful to me. Like I, I really, really focus hard on making sure we have representation, not just on from a gender perspective, but from a racial perspective as well. Um, that we, um, you know, that we're inclusive in, in every way you can imagine. Because it's not just about finding a seat at the table for yourself; it's about pulling up a chair for someone else. Um, and again, I think that's part of how, without realizing it, that's how I got in the game in the first place. Was people kind of asking me um, to consider investing. Yeah, it is so interesting. I mean, what we've seen with people starting to invest, and I tell the story I've told before, but like we have it, ours, our group's open to non-accredited investors, which is a whole different thing, which I think will eventually open up more. But I tell people like I had, I was in an Uber driving and I was talking to this lady who's in real estate and I was talking about this angel group. So yeah, I invest in startups. She's like, oh, that's interesting. Like she asked more questions, more questions. By the end, she was super interesting. She's like, what was the name of it again? It's like Vitalize Angels. The next day she joined Vitalize Angels and like starting to invest in startups. Like anyone, like anyone could do it. And as we see regulations hopefully change with the SEC as well, that opens up more. But there's a huge gap still in the, like the education component okay. of that. And it's like people getting comfortable with it, but also understanding what this is. Like to your point, you didn't even know, you didn't really think about it. It's like, we think about it all, all the time, always trying to think about how we get more people into this and like understanding yeah. what the education piece looks like for yeah. that. Um, yeah. because it, that's, that's a huge gap as well within this. And it is. yeah. And with, with Lux, what is, I mean, there's so many things you're, you have going on. How do you almost wondering like what a day looks like for you across all stages you're looking at? Uh, you're also writing a book. We're going to get into that. There's a lot of things happening. How do you manage all this, Dina? Um, I don't, I'm pretty open about that. I'm like <laughs> constantly feel like I'm feeling on multiple fronts. Um, you know, I've never worked harder in my life, but I've also never felt like I've never, just never had more fun. Like it doesn't, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's not work in the way where I'm like, oh, I got to do this. I got to do that. Like I, I have to actually try to force myself not to do it because I enjoy doing it. I also <laughs> have two true. little children and a husband and, you know, um, and, and, you know, a family and aging parents and all of that. So that's something that's uh, important to me as well. Um, I don't have a solution for it because again, this job doesn't scale. I've been on 
I've been in operating yeah. roles before where we, you know, we're able to to hire and, you know, expand and all of that. And certainly we're growing our team at Lux, but the nature of venture is not, you know, it's not corporate in that sense. So it's a challenge I, I, I struggle with a lot. Uh, I'm sure there are emails I owe people. Sorry. You know, I'm sure there are, um, you know, some, it's oftentimes just like, am I going to sleep? like an extra 20 minutes or am I going to try yeah. to get to like not even close to inbox zero, but a little bit more, am I going to be able to, you know, protect time? So I, I try to be as intentional as I can with how I do spend my time. I think I've written about this before, but you know, becoming a mom was a, um, a game changer for me in terms of what I realized I was capable of doing like with a minute or an hour in a day, like just transcending to a level of productivity that was kind of heretofore unimaginable. So part of why I love to invest in moms. On, on that note. So with all the time you're spending on things, deciding to write a children's book. How did that come about? And because I that every project has to, you take like, you look at the opportunity cost of like that versus everything else. You're looking at all the things you're doing. Why for you to do that? I'm curious. Well, just in the same way, I kind of explain how I, how I think about starting a company. It's like, so, mm -hmm. you know, for me, it was like, I was looking for a book for, to read to my kids. It was several years ago. Um, it was my, my daughter, who's now in first grade, was in preschool. I, I got, got to volunteer for career week. And imagine trying to explain to a bunch of three-year-olds what exactly venture capital is or even starting a business. Um, not easy. It's hard enough to explain to, to adults, as we just talked about. So for, <laughs> for me, whenever I, there's a complex topic that um, I'm trying to deal with as a parent, I, I'm I turned to books and there's some amazing books out there on lots of these types of topics. So I, I searched, I searched far and wide and there were some great books about science, you know, about STEM, uh, you know, Ada Twist Scientist and, you know, um, increasingly more wonderful books, you know, with girls as the protagonist in particular, there was nothing, nothing about starting a business. I mean, I think I found one book about like a lemonade stand and I combined that. So basically I left that day saying, I, I'm going to, I'm going to write this book. Like I've, I've always loved you know, writing and, 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 uh, you know, and even rhyming, like I used to do like slam poetry and things like that. So, but that it took years. It was basically over the holidays during, you know, 2020, uh, pandemic time where it just like, I kind of got, uh, inspired overnight and, and wrote this book. And then of course it's gone through many edits and iterations and that's a whole nother story, like the process of kind of getting, you know, an agent and publishing and so on. But, and it's still going to be, I think my kids are going to be geriatric by the time it's out in the world. It's a very long process. <laughs> Hopefully they'll still be able to enjoy it as a children's book, but yeah. it'll, it'll be out in the world in maybe a year if I'm lucky. Amazing. I know we're almost out of time here. So where's the best place for founders to reach out to you and also connect with you if they'd like to? Yeah. Um, Twitter is great. Um, actually, uh, I've been amazed by Gail and all the amazing work that she's doing on the, on the vitalized side with Twitter and, um, and Matt, she's crushing it. Um, and my DMS are open. So Twitter is great. Perfect. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening. If you want to learn more about us, head on over to vitalize.vc. You can also follow us on Twitter at vitalizevc. Or you can follow me on Twitter at JustinGordon212. Have a great day, and I'll talk to you in the next episode.